Welcome to Reading Aloud Live. Today we are in part six of Midas Right. This is uh, the original version of it. And so it's like, you know, 1896. It's rife with spelling errors, contextual errors, copying errors, because again, it's an old volume that I'm reading. Not the best quality. That being said, hey, it's been a while. Um, I've missed you. <laughs> it feels like it's been forever since I've done one of these, right? It has been quite some time. Uh, Valeria, how are you, my dear? It's always good to see you. Moira, I hope I said that right. Good to see you, too. And anyone else uh, joining throughout the course of this. I know this is, today is special because it's a hundred year anniversary of women getting the right to vote in the United States. But I'm going to be reading some really shitty stuff about women today. So, so prepare yourselves. Hold on to the cockles of your heart. Clutch those pearls because it's going to get very weird. I promise you that. What's up, Rodden? Good to see you, man. All right. So uh, again, this is chapter six, part six. We're going to finish this today. I don't think it's going to take the normal two hours that I've devoted to each of these readings in the past. So let's dive into it, shall we? If you have any thoughts about what I'm reading or what is happening in the text, put them down in the chat room and we'll get to it. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Hopefully it'll be an entertaining time tonight. I got other things I want to do too, so I don't want to spend too much time on this. You know what I mean? So we'll work through it. You and me. <clears throat> All right. Chapter six, part six. Among our Norse and Germanic forefathers, it was considered the saddest disgrace that could befall any matron to be the mother of a weakling or a laggard in war. Only for the debasing influence of priestcraft that would be felt by modern women of all grades. Roman matrons have died of broken hearts and even drowned themselves in shame at the poltroonery displayed by a son. If past generations had to depend on the sweet girly girl, fragile young thing of today, or the lean lady graduate for its reproductive ova, we would long ago have become a swarm of ring-tailed baboons. Poor things. They also feel their artificiality, feels it in their hearts when they look upon the spindle-shanked, mutilated males, scarecrows of men, that, are, that they are expected to love, honor, and obey. Over-intellectualism, bad enough in man, transfigures women into freaks. The more animal nature a maiden possesses, the more of a true woman she is, the better wife and mother she will make. Culture and refinement are horrible substitutes for the grand old matronly virtues, beauty, naturalness, purity, maidenly hypnotism. Intellectualism renders more sensitive. Sensitive persons are very excitable, timid, and liable to disease. Overcultivation of the brain cells undoubtedly produces in both sexes physical decay and leads on towards insanity. Women's noblest occupation is not merely to read erotic novels, pound the fiddle, waltz divinely, or fry steaks and onions, but to breed men, to raise up a race of unsubdued fighters, fighters for their own hand. 
Her vilest occupation is to duplicate anemic poltroons, creeping Judas's laborious jackasses. Therefore, if she desires her sons to be brave, bold, and successful in the battle of life, she should see to it that her husband is not a coward or a slave, and men ought also ware of marrying slave-minded women. This point is simply set forth in the saga of Olaf Trigwasen. Earl Rognwald had a degenerate son who returned from a Viking cruise without bringing any plunder. This was considered a shameful disgrace by the family. Earl Rognwald remarked, My son is not like my forefathers. So he fitted the young man out afresh, saying to him, I shall be pleased if you come not again, but I have little hope that you will ever be an honor to your kinsmen, for your mother's family are all a thrall born. Have moderns ever improved on that thought? There's nothing particularly inviting about barren, dyspeptic, blue-stocking new women in pants and spectacles, talking idiotic snuffle through their noses with bursts made of adjustable India rubber, busts, with narrower padded hips and wheels between their legs, scorching across the curbstones like mad. When such women are captured, what good are they? They won't even breed, or if they do so by accident, their puny embryos have to be delicately nurtured into life with steam-heated incubator mechanism, and afterwards fed and weaned on the bottle. The sons of such women, bottle-fed abortions, of what good are they? It is women of this kind, unnatural monsters they are, that cause so much domestic unhappiness. They've been educated along false lines, filled with bookish artificialism, and thereafter, when called upon to take up their matronly duty, they are organic incapables. Hence the divorce court scandals, the fruit of wholesale degeneracy encouraged by state interference with domestic affairs. Our times, in sin prolific first, the marriage bed with taint have cursed, and family and home, this is the fountainhead of all, the sorrows and the ills that fall, on Romans and on Rome. Horace. Gradually, the curse of law invades the privacy of every home. It encourages emotional feminines to defy husbands and deify an irresponsible authority. In other words, it deliberately promotes unfaithfulness and unlimited free love. It undermines the husband's control. But at what a dreadful cost! With the equalization of women comes wholesale panmixia, scientific concubinage, state-regulated polyandry, and the poisoning of all interfamily intercourse. When average women find in statute law a deliverer and a champion more powerful than their husbands and brothers, they become both unfaithful and profligate, especially well-educated. Then it cometh to pass, and as in all ages of connubial decadence, no man knoweth his own father. Is not that the practical tendency of the times? Again, is that tendency itself not the horrible result of state paternalism, of majority box dictation, 
of statecraft and priestcraft? The church lives by the functional emotionalism of women. Thus the individual wanes and the state grows more and more. In natural society, every woman's husband is to her both priest and king. When the baleful shadow of politics and preacherisms looms over the marriage bed, dreadful days are at hand. Purity of blood has played, and is yet to play, a leading role in the drama of racial evolution. Races held in bondage are necessarily mongrelized, degraded, equalized. Homeliness is one result of bad breeding. When a higher type allies itself by marriage with a lower, it paves the way for its own ultimate degeneracy. When Spartans and Athenians mixed themselves with imported Asiatic and Egyptian slaves, their downfall was foretold. And when equality became the motto of Christian Italy, Latins, Asiatics, and Negroes mis misgegen misgenated, evolving the modern Dago, whose slaves for the descendants of men his ancestors conquered. What a fall. Modern Greeks and Italians, with their dark complexions, curly hair, and sensual lips, show distinct traces of the Negro and Asiatic blood. That, with the emancipation of the Servi, was poured into their forefathers' veins. Hence their failure in the struggle for mastery. Hence their conquest by Goth, Mongol, Teuton, Turk, and Slav. A friend of Winwood Reed's tells a tale full of meaning. As an African explorer, he once came across a native tribe, the Jolofs, remarkable for their comparative fine appearance. He asked one of them, How is it that everyone whom I meet here is good-looking, not only your men, but your women? That is easily explained, was the reply. It has always been our custom to pick out our worst-looking ones and sell them for slaves. Hybridism south of Mason and Dixon's line, smoothed the way for Lincoln invasion of 62, and even in the northern states, if the present Ola Padrida intermixture with inferior breeds is not somehow put to an end. Similar invasions may be confidently predicted. Our race cannot hope to maintain its predominance if it goes on diluting its blood with Chinamen, Negroes, Japanese, or debased Europeans. Panmixia means both death and slavery. Throughout South and Central America, human mongrelism is rampant. A half-breed is present of Mexico. The Latin race is hopelessly effete in both the Old World and the New. Nations like horses are bred to win. Can you reverse rules that stupid farmers heed and men the higher by the coarser breed? Tremendous indeed is the occult influence of sex love upon the evolution of organic life. Love and glory, fidelity, emulation, resolution, beauty, strength, and courage are directly inspired by sex passions. In ballad and legend, they are ever inextricably intertwined. None but the brave deserve the fair. Faint heart never won fair lady. And all is fair in love and war are age-worn proverbs. Nature is saturated through and through with the chemic potency of strife and sexualism. All the world is male and female. The saint is the only hermaphrodite. 
Sexual desire inspires the male with nobility of bearing, and the female with instincts of motherhood, devotedness, and song. The roar of the lion he tosses his tawny mane by the forest waterhole. The neigh of the high-metaled stallion as he rears at the halter or leaps the slip rail. The deep, challenging bellows of the shaggy bull as he tears up the grass with his stamping hooves. The nightingale pouring piercingly into the azure vault, its magical thrill. Man, decked in his shining regimentals, marching forth to victory or death with drum beat and bugle song all bear direct testimony to the sublime, beneficent, and all-pervading mesmerism of force. Military renown is now and ever has been the virtue of the mightiest animals. Self-abnegation is the thesis of the slaves. Chrysalinism is functional derangement of the nerve centers, a madness, a disease! A national redeemer has never yet been known to materialize in the guise of a feeble mendicant, a humble petitioner, but rather in the form of a mighty manhunter, a destroyer of tribal ravages, a man who saith in his disciples, Come on, not go forth. The emancipator is heard of at first, with secret delight and some misgivings, but afterwards, when better understood, he comes on a war horse with steel by his side, amid the roll of saluting cannon, the throb of triumphal drums, the fierce bear, blare of twisted bugles, and the ringing huzzas of the people he has enriched by the exploitation of their foes. For all the world loves a fighter, especially its sisters, its cousins, and its aunts. Liberators never arrive from circumcised jewelry, wearing halos, briar crowns, uttering shrieks of agonized despair, nor do they ride on a colt the fowl of an ass through the streets of Zion. No! No! That is the ideal of dastards and dotards! In spite of all the century-old emasculating creeds and debasing copybook commercialisms, the inbred popular conception of a mighty man is still a sordid warrior, a king of men. The ruthless sweeper away of blackmailers, mailers, usurpers, priests, and usurers. Who shall be nearest, noblest, and dearest, named with all honor and pride evermore? He, the undaunted, whose banner is planted on power's high ramparts and battlements hoar, fearless of danger to falsehood a stranger, looking not back when there's danger before. He shall be nearest, he shall be dearest, he shall be first in our hearts evermore. A Virginian love song expresses this grand old sentiment in its sexual form. Rather would I view thee dying, on the last red field of strife. Mid thy country's heroes dying, then become a dastard's wife. John Ruskin, in an oft-quoted passage, decidedly caught a passing glimpse of the surging logic that lurks in armed conflicts. War is the foundation of all the high virtues and faculties of men. It is very strange for me to discover this, but I saw it to be quite an undeniable fact. The common notion that peace and the virtues of civil life flourished together, I found to be wholly untenable. P 
peace and the vices of civil life flourish together, decadence and peace are concentric. Oh, yeah. All right. That was that. So it wasn't as negative towards women as I anticipated it being. It was more <laughs> uh, antagonizing uh, weak men in society. But we'll take it. Hey, Lauren, how you doing, hon? What's up, Hilton? Uh, you had a vision just now of Ben Shapiro reading this as his wedding vow. <laughs> he would clutch his pearls and shit his pants. This is too much of a warrior's book for that guy. <laughs> that guy is... Oy vey. That too. Okay. Uh, Zachary, never super late, man. Yeah, to his doctor wife too, absolutely. Uh, we're going to move on with point seven. Here's the deal. Like the, the reality of all this is I could take... How was that? I could take like a third of this book and just throw it away as trash. But two thirds of it actually is still relevant today. Like there's some genuine gems in here. The trick is finding them amid all the bullshit. Seven, next to the belted sword swinger and the sturdy well-to-do athlete, the successful money-making man of affairs is especially attractive to the average female mind. He also, in lesser degree, is a resolute professional fighter, a scalp hunter, his scalps being title deeds to land, farm mortgages, bank credits, consoles, shares, and bonds. Consoles, shares, and bonds represent subdivided proportions of the battle booty. He also climbs to success over his prostrate rivals, for there is no other road. Success and money come to him only when he has outwitted his rivals, and finally triumphed in the ruthless rough-and-tumble of daily hourly conflict. The businessman is a conqueror of the most merciless, stony-hearted, and cruel kind. But we must not blame him for that. If he displays a particular uh, particle of human sympathy with the multitudinous victims of his business methods, he is immediately outgeneraled, bankrupted, bankrupted, ruined by rivals with more iron in their strategy, more hardness in their hearts. A kind-hearted man is always a failure in business, and he is always a failure in war. War means thoroughgoing smashing up of your opponent so that he may be prevented from smashing you up. And it is ditto, ditto, ditto in all the parallel phases of commerce and trade. With money in his purse, the successful businessman is able to support a family and rear up his children in an environment of comparative freedom. And women are sharp to perceive this. In such matters, the female mind is preternaturally acute. Except in sexual matters, a woman has no more brains than a cock sparrow. But in questions of marriage and love, she's an expert. Other things being equal, women prefer a rich man to a poor man for a husband. And they are scientifically justified. He who is without wealth admits unlimited quantities of it is either a coward, a born slave, or a lunatic. And no self-respecting woman should marry such an imbecile. The resolute and brave never hunger to the grave. The gallant and the bold never lack for gold. With the possession of an independence, a man is free to materialize his ideals. And if he is well born, it is impossible for his ideals to partake of the ignoble. Gold is a fierce resolvent. 
It is the sublimated extract of victory. It is the property, the booty of the strong. Whoever has sixpence, writes Carlyle, is sovereign over all men to the extent of that sixpence, commands cooks to feed him, philosophers to teach him, kings to mount guard over him to the extent of that sixpence. Therefore all men who would obtain freedom must obtain wealth by hook or by crook, or as R. L. Stevenson rhymes it, you also scan your life horizon for all that you can clap your eyes on. To become the child-bearer of a mere hireling, a day-drudge, is the last resort for a sensible feminine. Dowerless women never regard a poor lover with enthusiastic favor, except in conventional romances. Without being capable of logical reasoning, yet women intuitively comprehend that there is oft a lack of courage in the race of bondmen. If a man possesses wealth, no matter how obtained, he can pick and choose among the most delightful darlings in the land. Nay, he can buy them if he wants to, by the carload. Behind all the hypocritic veneer of piety and fashion, women of all ranks are still a marketable commodity. Whenever the supply exceeds the <laughs> whenever the supply exceeds the demand, they are straightway transmuted into magdalens, concubines, slaves, or new women. When few in number, as in young colonies, they possess a certain proportion of selective influence. But when for every eligible man there is a score of eligible women, their market value dwindles, and instead of selecting, they become the selected. Or as Darwin puts it, the sexual struggle is of two kinds. In the one, it is between the individuals of the same sex, generally the males, in order to drive away or kill their rivals, the females remaining passive, while on the other, the struggle is likewise between the individuals of the same sex, generally the females, which no longer remain passive, but select the more agreeable partners. Vita, descent of man. In a reasonably natural society, the most vigorous males would possess property and power. Consequently, in accordance with the instincts of sexual attraction, they would also obtain possession and impregnate the best and handsomest feminines, leaving the ovum-bearing residue to be fertilized by the less vigorous males. In an unnatural system of society, such as the fiendish socialistic scheme amidst which we now retrograde, weaklings, dotards, and semi-madmen are deliberately permitted to retain property privileges that they are manifestly unable to defend if put to the test. The law defends the unfit consequently opulent, weaklings preponderate in the selection and retention of the finest females. Resultantly, the children of such unnatural unions seldom reach ever average perfection. More often than otherwise, they are a shame and a malaison of their kindred. The sons of vicious and very corrupt men, wrote Plutarch ages ago, reproduce the very nature of their parents. This nation literally swarms with vile, semi-idiotic mannequins, leprous wretches, damned in the womb, whose presence among us is a standing menace to all things truly great and noble. It is not by breeding meeklings and stunted profligates that nobility of national character is evolved. 
Why should diseased and ignoble animals, rich or poor, be encouraged to populate luxurious wigwams with fragile, anemic, bottle-fed, scrofulous dwarves? When nature demands their wholesale segregation by the edge of the sword. Dr. Haycraft suggests the society should socialistically segregate the unfit. But that is manifestly out of the question inasmuch as society is incompetent to provide a testing standard, sufficiently absolute and accurate, to decide satisfactorily who are and are not the unfit. Nature, however, has provided that standard, and it is unending conflict between rival interests with women, power, and property as the contestant's final prize. The surest, fairest, and most scientific method of redistributing monopolized plunder and accumulated privilege is unlimited struggle. Let the best men win. Is that not the logic of events of science, of fact, and of nature? Why should Anglo-Saxondom doltishly stand guard over the copulations of opulent decadence and shells of creepingly unwarlike proletarians? Nor is anyone so careless, writes Charles Darwin, as to breed from his worst animals. Even savages, when compelled from extreme want to kill some of their animals, would destroy the worst and preserve the best. Yeah, exactly. Cock sparrow. <laughs> All right. I'm digging this. The tone I give it, like the energy you give it when you read it, completely changes or alters the message, in my opinion. Because it could just be this silent rambling of a mad mind, or it could be like you know, the Hitler standing at a podium chanting to a crowd, you know, with this call and response action. It entirely depends on the energy that you give it as you read it. I think that's kind of interesting. I like to do like a push and pull with the tone. Because yeah, I've never read this part of it before, so I'm just sort of going off of the content. Hopefully it's working out for you. I guess we'll figure that out. Let's continue. Eight. The fit are not the individuals who merely inherit stolen property or obtain peaceful possession thereof by subterraneanism, but those who deliberately and openly proprietorize themselves. If taboos were not so insanely reverenced, proprietors who are incapables would be unceremoniously pushed aside, most probably to make room for better men. If those in possession victoriously prove their capacity, then their prerogatives cannot be abrogated or abridged. But should they, they fail, then their vanquishers, presumably better men, are biologically justified in dispossessing them. Let the best man win is an assertive, at once popular, scientific, and suggestive. The mastership of the ablest man is actually what science and circumstances demand. In nature, an organism's right is commensurate with its mentality and physique. In the realm of cosmic law, the only statute of limitations is superior power. A priori rights are as non-existent as the gods, ghosts, and moral taboos of the pontiffs and pastors. 
Therefore, the police officer's club, being in harmony with the dynamic necessities of matter and motion, is part and parcel of the divine order. So our clubs in general, men shall ring around each other in a fierce, unending strife. Each shall strive to beat his brother, while for while, and life for life. If legislative injunctions and other bogey contrivances were wholly disregarded, then the strongest and the boldest, therefore the wisest, would be fertilizing the pick of the best damsels per marriage, transmit their own right royal qualities to the immediate descendants. Upon similar principles, second-rate males would be of necessity pair off with second-rate females. This, by cumulative atavism and interbreeding of underlings, would gradually tend to eliminate, subjugate, and efface the seed of the servile-minded, the superstitious and the over-intellectualized. Hereditary virtues can only be maintained by keeping them in constant use, hence the biological necessity of unmerciful struggles between individuals and groups of individuals. As with muscles and organs of the body, so human aptitudes are developed by use and attenuated by non-use. Nearly all the masterful qualities, mental and physical, that have ever distinguished the elite of mankind have originated in conflict. Racial rottenness, the conjoint result of holy hy hydrophobia and the state-regulated hybridism, can only be eliminated by an intelligent application to the breeding of human beings, of the principles of natural selection conjoined with conscience rejection, culminating from time to time in deadly conflicts. War is the most important phase of racial sex and tribal evolution. One panic-stricken coward may cause the loss of a battle, and the loss of one battle may decide for ages, perhaps forever, the fate of a race. Hence, the necessity of breeding men who are fighters, fighters in their heart. Hence also the need for training them, from boyhood up, to conquer and overthrow their oppressors and personal enemies, at any cost, at any peril. By no known alchemy can a race of warriors and free men be evoluted evoluted out of the flock of bleeding, buying, lapping lambs suckled on teats of priest-rid dams. The qualities which have enabled the Teutonic races to play their wonderful part in history of Europe are well displayed in the valiant sons of Tancred, of Houghtonville, William Ironarm, Robert Giscard, Roger, and the rest, who carved out kingdoms for themselves in Apulia and Sicily, they were a vigorous race, large of limb, stout of heart, tenacious of will, with abundant physical energy, taking their pleasures in drink and hunting. They have broad shoulders, fair hair, blue eyes, as we see in Anna Comnenia's portrait of the son of Robert Gascard, Bohemond, Prince of Tarentum, who was a cubit taller than the tallest man, with blue eyes, his cheeks tinted with golden red. Taylor's origin, Aryan race. Oy vey. <laughs> We're getting some, some pretty uh, interesting uh, selective breeding principles. I love it when everything he says, he's like, it is scientifically proven <laughs> through nature that this is a fact. Like, you didn't have to, there wasn't like encyclopedias or Wikipedias to look up information. If you're reading a pamphlet, you just have to decide, is this credible or is it not? Hence, everything they say in it is true or not. 
I think that is how we have gotten so ignorant uh, in this time, in the 19th century when this was written. Uh, because you just had people in positions of authority saying, no, 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 this is true. And people not in positions of authority were like, I mean, if he said it, it's got to be true, right? <laughs> got to be. Right? Yeah. No one asked questions? <laughs> Unless the breeding of man is nature running its natural course, hence the selection it wanted in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, he is at once saying um, the over-intellectualized, which seems to be what he is actually proving through this diatribe. He is over-intellectualizing pseudo-scientific information and, and racist propaganda, which is interesting. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't even know how to, how to take this shit. There'll be good, some good stuff, I'm sure. Nine. All hireling labor is corroding, corrupting, degrading, devilish. Cursed is the brow that sweats for hire and the back that bends to a master's burden. Calloused hands imply calloused minds. Virtue in bondage. What an insane paradox. There is something mutilated about men who exert their strength of their body or mind for the enrichment of taskmasters masters and women are not slow to perceive it women are never deluded with the maniac philosophy that jack is as good as his master indian squaws have no admiration for the brave who has never taken a scalp and white women have even less for the bearded man who amidst gold and silver by the ton lives from hand to mouth like a mangy cur. The bolder and more aggressive men are, the more women of all classes admire them, and vice versa. Thus the surging ebb and flow of attraction and of gravitation is ever directed towards the impregnation of the fair by the strong. How glorious beneath the sun is the union of the beautiful and the brave! Soiled hands, if soiled from market hire or the payment of tribute, imply a soiled manhood, a biological organism of low degree. Labor performed for oneself is passable. When performed for others, it is utterly debasing, ruinous to brain and body. From the beginning of time, the defeated classes have ever been the laboring classes, the tenants, the vassals, the sans-culottes, and the conquerors, their errors or signs have always provided or hired the priests, generals, taskmasters, and rulers. This is as true of the United States, a European colony, as it was of Thebes, Troy, Babylon, Persia, Carthage, Rome. Fallen from primeval innocence and ease, when thornless fields employed him but to please, the laborer toils, and from his dripping brow, moistens the lengthening furrows of the plow. In vain he scores and spurns his altered state, tries each poor shift and strives to cheat his fate. In vain new shapes his name to shun the ill. Surf, hireling help, the curse pursues him still. Chainless, 
uh, changeless the doom remains, the mincing phrase, may mock high heaven, but not reverse its ways. The only apparent difference between the bond servant of antiquity and the educated hireling of today is the thoroughgoing lunacy of the latter. The ancient Servi knew that they were held in bondage by force of arms, but modern slaves being born, maniacal degenerates don't know it. Indeed, the free workmen of England and America can be compared to nothing more appropriate than Ibsen's hero who fancied himself a reigning monarch with the fate of empires in his nod when inside a Cairo madhouse his head was ceremoniously encircled with a diadem of straw. His brow is wet with honest sweat is the national anthem of an insane asylum. From whatever side we view him, the average hireling is a shameless contemptible being. He cannot be classified among men any more than a cap-on can be classified as a gamecock. Continuous drudgery stiffens his body, ossifies both his hand and brain, makes him an idiot, in fact. Even women, indulgent though they be, regard him as a disdainful object, incapable of either great thoughts, great deeds, or of providing them with a home. Hirelings are nearly always on the verge of pauperdom, always praying, howling with a loud voice like spoiled babies. Oh, don't hurt us! Don't hurt us! We are so good! So law-abiding! We love Jesus so! Capitalists, kings, and presidents never take these servile hounds into consideration, nor do sensible women. In grand affairs, hirelings are merely inventoried as so much raw material or so many head of cattle, and in sexual affairs, they must of necessity mate themselves with second-rate women who cannot possibly find anything more to their taste. What woman in her senses desires to be a breeder of drudges, lunatics, and sans culottes? The very idea of labor is in chains and yokes. There is no dignity in a bent back, no glory in a perspiring brow, no honor in greasy copper-riveted rags. There is nothing very delectable in picks, shovels, and calloused paws. Dignity of labor, dignity of hell! What grand in a horny hand? What is free in a bended knee? What is brave in a pauper grave? What is bold in a lack of gold? O oh, ye generations of Christ-deluded imbeciles, ye swarms of moonstruck meeklings, ye burnt-out cinders of men, ye bleeding lambs! One day, one day ye shall be flung to the lions! Behold, I spit upon your idols! your opinions. Now would I pour molten hell through the ventricles of your soul. O wretched minds of men! O blind hearts! Not to see in what darkness of life and in what dangers is spent this little term of human existence. For as children are frighted, uh, frightened at fancied objects in that gloom, so we in broad daylight often fear what deserves no more to be feared than the shadows of the children dread in the dark and fancy they must exist. End of book one. P.S. Book two will be issued when circumstances. The logic of today. Inferior organisms succumb and perish or are enslaved. 
superior organisms survive, propagate, and possess. Darwin. All men are created equal is an infernal lie. Not by speechifying and majority votes can the great questions of today be settled, but by iron and by blood. Bismarck. Might was right when Caesar bled upon the stones of Rome. Might was right when Joseph led his hordes o'er Jordan's foam. And might was right when German troops poured down through Paris gay. It's the gospel of the ancient world and the logic of today. Behind all kings and presidents, all government and law, are army corps and cannoneers to hold the world in awe. And sword-strong races own the earth and ride the conqueror's car, and liberty has near been won except by deeds of war. What are the lords of hoarded gold, the silent Semite rings? What are the plunder patriots, high pontiffs, priests, and kings? What are they but bolt master minds, best fitted for the fray, who comprehend and vanquish by the logic of today? Cain's knotted club is scepter still, the rights of man is fraud. Christ's ethics are for creeping things, true manhood smiles at God. For might is right when empires sing in storms of steel and flame, and it is right when weakling breeds are hunted down like game. Then what's the use of dreaming dreams that each shall get his own? By forceless votes of meek-eyed thralls who blindly sweat and moan. No! A curse is on their cankered brains, their very bones decay. Go! Trace your fate to the iron game, is the logic of today. The strong must ever rule the weak, is grim primordial law. On earth's broad racial threshening floor, the meek are beaten straw. Then ride to power o'er foemen's necks, let nothing bar your way. If you are fit, you'll rule and reign, is the logic of today. You must prove your right by deeds of might, of splendor and renown, if need be marching through flames of hell to dash opponents down. If need be, die on scaffold high in the morning's misty gray, for liberty of death is still the logic of today. Might was right when Gideon led the chosen tribes of old, and it was right when Titus burnt their temple roof with gold. And might was right from Bunker's Hill to far off Monterey. By land and flood it's wrote in blood the gospel of today. Put not your trust in princes, is saying old and true. Put not your hope in governments, translateth it anew. All books of law and golden rules are fashioned to betray. The survival of the strongest is the gospel of today. Might was right when Carthage flames lit up the Punic foam, and when the naked steel of Gaul weighed down the spoil of Rome. And might was right when Richmond fell, and at Thermopylae. It's the logic of the ancient world and the gospel of today. Where pundit suns and millions swing around this whirling earth, its might, its force that holds the brakes and steers through life and death. Force governs all organic life, inspires all right and wrong. 
It's nature's plan to weed out man and test who are the strong. And that was Might is Right by Ragnar Redbeard. The end. We did it. <laughs> victory at last. Victory at last. Sweet fucking hell. Victory at last. Uh, yeah, that last little bit didn't have a whole lot of uh, magic in it. You know what I mean? Not a lot. <laughs> I don't know. Um... <laughs> for angrily yelling the entire book. Pretty close. Pretty close. Um, the thing is... Thanks, Viserys. Yeah, seriously, we got through it, man. We got through it together. <laughs> um, I guess now is the time to sort of reflect back on the entire volume, right? Um, one, is it worth reading? Is it a volume that should be shut away, burned, and just destroyed forever? Um... Is it something that, uh, aside from what the doctor took out of it, is worth exploring in any capacity? And can a logical man of today read this and think, yeah, yeah, I see myself in this thing. I have a hard time believing that that could be a true thing. But, it, to be fair, there are white supremacists who really do, like, see themselves in this volume. Which I think is a little bit sad, if I'm being honest. <laughs> like, what kind of, what kind of, what kind of meek fool is so terrified of other human beings that they have to live in this A and B world that this volume espouses to be reality, right? Like, every, there is no right and wrong. Everything is an in-between. But if you are to believe something like this, then there has to be a right and wrong, a good and a bad, a weak and a strong, a master and a slave, right? But that's not reality. That, it's never been like that. Yes, mankind has acted like that in history, but it's never been the actual case. I don't know. I do always, yeah, so Zachary says, definitely worth reading. Perspective is always useful, even if you completely disagree with it. I completely agree with that statement. Um, we should never shun. And, you, know, you know, like uh, Hitler's writings, Mein Kampf, for example, is like a banned book in, I, I think, maybe the most banned book anywhere on this planet. <laughs> As if there's other planets I could compare it to. Um, and though I've never read it, I don't think banning it would be a a good thing. I think let people see who these people are. And the truth is, is <laughs> every broken clock is right twice a day. Every idiot who writes anything down, probably there's, there's a semblance of some sort of logic buried in it somewhere that you don't need to read that volume in order to grasp. There's, there's millions of other books out there from uh, worthwhile authors uh, who actually think, who have perspective and don't just try to shit on other people to make themselves feel better. Uh, that you could get the same little gem that you'd have to dig for from the one bigot or the one misogynist or the one racist. Uh, but I do think that this particular volume was worth diving into. Um, it is one of those volumes that if you learn anything about Satanism, 
it's going to come up. It's going to rear its ugly head in the background somewhere distant of, hey, have you guys heard of Amida's right? We heard that the doctor used that to create the Book of Satan. And so just for that alone is definitely worth checking out and reading. Because, again, he didn't just take a chapter and then copy it and put it in as the Book of Satan. No, no, no. Throughout the hours and hours and hours I've like just dumped into reading this aloud, from all that time, I have caught little snippets of like phrase or sentence that he sort of cherry-picked. So he didn't just copy this, he cultivated it. He cut away the fat. This was a brick, a big shitty brick that he pounded and he chiseled away. And then he took what was point the diamond that he uh, discovered once he chiseled away all the shit <laughs> that was around it. Pretty interesting. Let me see what you guys have to say. Um, for you, it's totally worth it because it was able to contextualize the parts that the doctor used and to distinguish them from the elements that he thought to discard. See, that's interesting because we do traditionally only focus on what he actually pulled out of it and kept, right? We think, oh, this is the best of it. But we don't think there's a reason why he didn't keep the other stuff. There's a reason why he chopped out all the bigoted and racist and homophobic and, and um, uh, 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 misogynistic bits, right? And we can't, we can't see one side without accepting the other. And this is something that always bothered me whenever you run across any Satanist or anyone who sees Satanism as a racist, fascist, bigoted, misogynistic group. One, they've never read anything clearly. But the creator, the founder, took great lengths to not only speak against those things, but to avoid any potential inference that they were a part of this religion. By literally cutting it out of everything that he put in there. I think that's interesting, right? All right, you glean metaphorical value or at least informational value from things you disagree with. Um, did I read that right? Metaphorical? Tiring, though. Yeah, Jordan. Um, that's the thing is that, you know, I, I'm reading this to try to make it entertaining for the people to listen to. And so I am like screaming and shouting and raising and lowering and, you know, dramatic reading, whatever. Um, if I was just in my head reading this, it would be really tiring. I it, it would be a chore to get through. But it was very much because it was a, a sort of almost a performance that it made it worthwhile for me, entertaining for me. You know what I mean? Just sitting down and reading these words. Oy vey. Fuck, man. <laughs> that would be rough. It reminds you of your old long dead clansman stepdad's rants. Oy vey. <laughs> Jeez. That's a good Thanksgiving meal conversation. Um, it definitely felt as if he could have condensed it down considerably if he wanted to and not really lost any of the punch. Yeah, but, you know, a lot of this, I, I'm, I'm reading a, a book right now for the book club. Um, and those of you in the book club in the, in the chat room are going to you know, know this. But when you're writing these sort of madmen diatribes, there's not a logic to it. You're in the moment just fucking going crazy with the typewriter or writing pen to paper or doing it on a, a computer and you're just getting your thoughts down in what you believe is logical uh, form but 
as anyone who comes in afterward is going to see and go like, whoa, dude, you're all over the place. Like you mentioned this eight times, but in their mad mind, it makes perfect logical sense to repeat it in the context of the new place, just as they did, you know, in the old place. So hold on a second. What the hell? There was a fucking ant on my wall. How the fuck did that guy get there? Um, and so it's not like he went through 18 drafts and editors and stuff like that. I really don't think there's no fucking way that happened because they would have caught a lot of the spelling errors that I tripped over or a lot of the duplicate words, they, they, that I freaking read because I'm an idiot and I'll read whatever's on screen, like fucking Anchorman. Um, and then I, like afterward in my head as I'm continuing reading, I'm like, holy shit, I just read the same word twice. They're going to think I'm <laughs> not doing it right. But no, it's actually in the text. Like, it's clearly in the text. So there was no, there was no trimming the fat in this. There was, there was no second version that I can see. Those second versions and those trimmings were from other like reprintings after this dude was gone. Like other people discovering this volume and going like, ooh, let's, uh, let's change this up. And I'm sure you're going to get all of that in the annotated version that Underworld Amusements put out because they went through like five versions of this book to put it together, I think. Crazy. Crazy amount of work for something like this. But I'm glad they did because <laughs> I wouldn't have. <laughs> no way. Um, even the Germans didn't care for not Mein Kampf when it was released. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. I haven't really studied that book at all, <laughs> so I don't know. I just know that uh, it's uh, it's supposed to be this ooky thing that people freak out about. But who gives a fuck? Like, who cares? Honestly. All right. Well, it's been an hour, or at least close to it. I'm ready to turn the page on <laughs> Midas Right. Thank you all so much for going down this rabbit hole with me. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm hoping that none of this gets taken out of context. And little snippets of me reading it aren't placed in different places. Like, that Campbell's a racist. Um, because that would be easy to do. <laughs> so I'm going to have to keep these videos up forever to prove those little snippets wrong that are taken out of context. Um, I don't know. Next, I'm going to be reading some Mark Twain. Um, and that should be really good. And that's going to be in a little bit uh, before I get to that. But I'm not going to be doing, like, what I was doing before was reading aloud, like, classic books. And then when I was done with one of those, I'd read some of a satanic book. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to read the next book. So if it's a satanic book, I'm just going to read the standard book. If it's a classic one, I'll do the classic one. Um, and that's because I don't, the truth is this channel is a satanic channel. And so I, I don't want to um, force feed a potential audience stuff that they're not interested in um and it only give them little bits at a time of the stuff they are interested in you know what i mean so uh that being said i will um i think i'm going to do more of this live reading like on camera to an audience so that we can get a back and forth and especially with uh the um the one i'm doing with uh mark twain let me see if I can find the, the name of it really quick so you guys know what's coming. But um, that should be really fun, I think. Oh, well, I can't do it right now. Uh, and that's it. That's all I got. 
thank you guys so much for tuning in and for bearing with me on all of this. I know there's a lot of mispronunciation of words and stumbling and trips and giggling when I shouldn't have been giggling because of what the context was or the content I was reading was. Um, I can't help but pull a, a mug and like pull a face when I read something just insane because it doesn't, <laughs> it's just fucking crazy. Uh, and there's a lot of that in this, so I hope that's okay. Uh, and then, of course, if you like what I'm doing, if you like the different types of series that I'm putting out, subscribe to the YouTube channel. That helps a lot. That lets me know that people are, are paying attention. Like the videos, share them if you're inclined to. And if you get this as a podcast form, give me a rating or review on that podcast platform that you're listening to it on, however you're getting it. Uh, and that's it. So, uh, thank you all so much. I'm going to do, go decompress from Might Is Right. You guys fucking rock. And until next time, hail Satan. <laughs>